I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Thanks for downloading Making a Killing. I'm Bethany McLean. Usually I'm talking to guests about topics I haven't covered as a journalist, but every once in a while there's overlap between the topic of the show and the pieces I've written for Vanity Fair. And it's really fun for me to be able to hear another journalist's perspective on a topic that I also know well. This week I'm talking to Barry Meyer about the opioid crisis, and I hope you're looking forward to next week's show in which I'll talk to Lynette Lopez about the cult of Elon Musk. The opioid crisis is one of the most devastating public health crises ever to have hit America. Back in 1996, a prescription opioid known as OxyContin first entered the market. It was among the first opioids to be heavily marketed, yes, legally. And since that time, more than 400,000 Americans have died from opioid overdoses. Millions more continue to struggle with addiction, and entire communities have been devastated by the epidemic. Today, the major problem isn't so much prescription opioids as it is fentanyl, the synthetic opioid that contributed to the deaths of both Tom Petty and Prince. But many argue that the fentanyl problem wouldn't exist at this scale were it not for prescription opioids. According to a government study, roughly 80% of heroin users, who often switch to cheaper and stronger fentanyl, started with prescription opioids. I'm always curious about the genesis of problems, particularly giant, culturally devastating problems like this one. Tracing and untangling the roots helps explain not only the past, but also the present. So who or what is to blame for the opioid crisis? Where is the original sin? Is this all about the money? Or is there a deeper, scarier story behind what went wrong? Today's favorite villain is the Sacklers, the secret family that owns Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. Journalist Barry Meyer was one of the first to focus on them. His book, Painkiller, was published back in 2003. 
Meyer's work was also among the first to point out the nexus between the pain management movement and the explosion of opioid use. Pharmaceutical companies saw that they could increase their sales by arguing that pain could and should be treated with opioids. Somehow, the companies argued that this could be done with minimal risk, even though it flew in the face of literally hundreds of years of history about the known dangers of opioids. How did the industry do this? Essentially with money, paying millions of dollars to doctors and pain management organizations to convince them and us that opioids were salvation. I recently spoke with David Sackler, the grandson of one of the founders of Purdue, for a Vanity Fair piece I did. David served on Purdue's board from 2012 to 2018, and he is defensive, to say the least, about the role that his family business played. My reporting left me even more intrigued by this topic, so I'm thrilled to have Barry Meyer here with me today. So I see your book actually is not being just about the crisis, but of being something of a metaphor about it. And you wrote in a recent article that the book appeared at the dawn of the opioid epidemic and the sun quickly set on your book a year after publication, it, it went out of print. Why did it take so long for people to care? I think it was probably a question of numbers. At the time that the book came out, which was in 2003, there were startling numbers. There were approximately 16,000 overdose deaths at that time. Oh, so many. you would think wow. those numbers alone would be adequate to generate interest, but not just in terms of the book, but in terms of our societal response, be it legal, regulatory, medical, that didn't really start to happen until maybe three or four years ago when the numbers started to climb into the 40, 50, 60,000 a year range of overdose deaths. You write in your book, a disaster that might have been contained with an early response had morphed into a hydra. How do you, how should we have seen this earlier? What, what's the lesson to draw from this? The lesson to be drawn from this is that public health officials, lawmakers, regulators, as you mentioned, had an opportunity to do something. They could have changed the course of this epidemic very early by taking pretty simple measures, encouraging doctors to prescribe less opioids, asking companies to take various steps to reduce or, or limit their marketing. But none of them did that. As to why they didn't, I think at that point, the drug industry has always been a very powerful force. They have a lot of lobbyists, and they were successful in convincing regulators and lawmakers that if you do crack down on these drugs, you're going to restrict the ability of patients who need pain medications to receive them. That was an interesting argument and in some ways a legitimate argument, but it was all predicated around the idea that drugs or narcotic painkillers were the only or the most appropriate way to treat pain. So the entire conversation was centered around the use of these drugs. So the entire conversation was almost answered before the conversation was had, in a sense, by the way the question was phrased. Right, you're going to punish patients. You know, so you basically you've got some people out there abusing drugs. They're bad actors. You know, it was basically a conversation that was framed in terms of black and white. The people with the black hats were the drug abusers, and they were sort of like expendable bad actors who were like violating the trust of doctors, committing crimes, creating chaos. 
the people with the white hats were the pain patients. And as long as you made sure that that these drugs were used appropriately by doctors, these people would only benefit from the drug. You know, a large part of our conversation about these drugs has been centered strictly around the notion of overdose deaths. But that masks what is also another issue with these drugs, and that is the many problematic side effects that they can cause in patients, which is, you know, everything from falls in the elderly to reduce energy drive to social withdrawal. I mean, I have interviewed many people over the years who, who told me that when they were on high doses of opioids for their, you know, chronic pain conditions, they essentially withdrew from their families, from their social lives. They withdrew from the world. They withdrew from the world. Let's go back to the beginning. You mentioned that there was some legitimacy to the argument that pain was being undertreated. How legitimate was that when you go back to the 70s and 80s when pain was definitely undertreated? It was very legitimate. And I think that the people who sort of became the advocates for more appropriate pain treatment, particularly in cancer pain treatment, end-of-life pain treatment, were real heroes in, in the medical sense. You know, you had situations in the United States where people were actually dying in pain. There were cancer patients at Who the end, end of, of life, life were in horrible pain. In horrible pain. And and basically they were being viewed as as drug addicts or whiners if they were seeking to have medication to deal with that pain. It was a very puritanical and parochial view of medicine. And, and this began to change when people who were advocates of the hospice movement yeah. in England, their ideas kind of came over to the United States. And, and researchers at Sloan Kettering and other major hospitals here in the U.S. began adopting more liberal use of opioids in the treatment of pain or in the treatment of end-of-life illnesses. And so in that sense, they really were addressing something that was an underlying problem. So to steal your word, this began as a heroic thing, as a very good thing, and has ended up as a very terrible thing. And in that narrative lies a whole bunch of things, right? right. And so let's, let's go back to another part of the beginning, which is Arthur Sackler. Who was he? Arthur Sackler was one of three Sackler brothers. They were, they were all trained psychiatrists. They were all kind of brilliant men in their own ways. But Arthur Sackler was sort of the leading light of the three brothers. He was the eldest of the brothers. And along with being a research psychiatrist, he also became interested and involved in the drug advertising industry. So just to set his career into context, the drug industry as we know it today really only began after the Second World War. There was a tremendous explosion in the number of drug companies and the number of drugs those companies were making. And Arthur Sackler saw an opportunity to create an allied ancillary industry, which was the advertising of prescription drugs that had not really existed before. And he worked for a drug advertising agency and began to develop ads for drugs that in time would be targeted to doctors. So he was a doctors. very modern medicine man. Totally. I, I, totally and, and, and brilliant 
in so many ways and coming up with concepts that are still being used today. For example, he started a magazine or, or a series of medical journals or, or faux medical journals that published... I like the qualification, faux well, medical. They, <laughs> they, were, they were sort of a, appeared to be sort of an entry fee because, you know, they would publish studies for Arthur Sackler's advertising clients or performed by his advertising clients. He had a newspaper that went out to doctors and many of the so-called stories or articles in those new newspapers were basically articles that were written by his in-house ad men or pitch men that were sort of promoting drugs or promoting treatments by certain drugs. I mean, he was sort of at the forefront of the explosion in the use of drugs by the medical profession in the concept that there was a pill for every ill. Oh, I like that phrase, a pill for every ill. So one thing I was surprised about in your book, I had always thought of Dr. Richard Sackler as being more of a force within the company. You actually portray him as somewhat meek in the book, somewhat in the shadow of Arthur. How do you think about his role at the company? At the time that I wrote the book and I was doing the reporting about Purdue, both Richard Sackler's father and his uncle were still alive. And I believed, or at least my sense at the time, you know, as far as the Sackler family went, they were making the big 30,000-foot decisions about what happened at Purdue. I was surprised when these, this recent slew of documents came out that showed Richard Sackler or portrayed him as being kind of a micromanager and, you know, seemingly harassing or ordering sales staff to do this, that, yes. or the other thing. And, and I'm wondering to what degree that was something that always existed or became increasingly the case as first his uncle and then his father aged and died off, whether he then took on a mantle that he hadn't previously had. So do you, before we get to OxyContin specifically and the development of it, do you see Purdue as the Sacklers company? And obviously it is technically, but do you see the Sacklers as having been in charge of the decisions that were made at Purdue? They obviously benefited from those decisions. They have always denied that they were in charge of the company. And I guess, you know, it's it gets issue, into a game of words. Yeah, right. how you want to legally parse right. that. I mean, the fact of the matter is that they controlled the company from the documentation that has emerged that they approved the budgets for the company so that at a certain stage, and hopefully we will know this at, at some point in the future, we'll know from board meetings, from board minutes, what decisions they approved or disapproved of, and that will certainly tell us how deeply involved in the company they were. So what made OxyContin so different from its predecessors? OxyContin was not different in terms of the active ingredient it contained. It contained a prescription narcotic called oxycodone, which was a very old drug, was used in many drugs like Percocet and, and prescription painkillers that had been around for decades. What made OxyContin unique is that in these other drugs, oxycodone was combined with over-the-counter pain relievers like acetaminophen. So they were weaker. And the amount of OxyContin 
or oxycodone these drugs contained was relatively small. It was about five milligrams. So OxyContin was pure oxycodone. It did not have any other ingredients in it. And it contained oxycodone in increasingly high amounts. So the weakest dose of OxyContin was 10 milligrams of oxycodone, twice as much as the typical Percocet. And from there, it went up to 80 milligrams. So the way that I think I described it in the book was that, you know, compared to like a conventional weapon, OxyContin was sort of the atomic bomb. When I spoke to David Sackler recently, one of his lines of argument was that the science changed. And so what was known at the time and what did change? How much did we understand at the time that OxyContin was launched in 1996 about the drug? The the sort of interesting thing about it is that nothing was really known one way or another. So to say that the science changed implies that there was science, science at the first, in the first to place exist, really- that existed. And in yes. fact, there wasn't. There was scientific wishful thinking, I think would be a more appropriate way to describe it. I love that uh, When OxyContin was first promoted, and this is going back to the mid-1990s, there really hadn't been any clinical trial, which is sort of like the basic standard for scientific evidence, run on OxyContin as a drug to see how it compared with other drugs to determine what percentage of people might develop a dependency or addiction to the drug. In fact, the drug was promoted very forcefully by its advocates based on data that actually had nothing to do with the long-term use of narcotic painkillers. I mean, one of the studies that was put forward wasn't even a scientific study. It was basically a brief letter that had appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine by some researchers in Boston where they were reporting on the experience of hospital patients who've been treated with narcotic painkillers. And this study was extrapolated to suggest that people could take narcotic painkillers for long periods of time at high dosages without any ill effect, when in fact these doctors had never followed the patients as soon as they set foot outside the hospital. Similarly, there was a study done at a headache clinic in Detroit, I believe. The data from that was actually extrapolated and misconstrued to suggest... Deliberately misconstrued? Oh, it was totally taken out of context (laughs) to suggest that these headache patients who had severe migraines could take narcotics and not suffer any ill effects from them. When in fact, when I called the researcher who had actually performed that study and told him how it was, how it had been used, he was stunned and pointed out the misstatements about the study and the fact that at the time that the study was being used to promote the use of long-term narcotics like OxyContin, it was pretty much accepted practice amongst headache experts that narcotics should never be used in the treatment of migraines because they caused what is known as rebound headaches. And in fact, when patients came into his clinic, they were taken off these types of drugs. So essentially, we had doctors who having succeeded in expanding the use of prescription painkillers in the setting of cancer wards, 
becoming convinced that the same drugs could be used at high dosages for long periods of time to treat all kinds of pain, you know, backaches, arthritis, dental pains, sports injuries, you name it. And to kind of promote that narrative, they grasped onto whatever little pieces of data they could and, and shoehorned it into the story that they wanted to tell. And thus was born this claim that the risk of addiction was less than 1%, Correct. right? Correct. And how, how does that happen? I mean, we're a supposedly scientific culture, right? And we're talking about doctors. We're talking about scientists. Why was everybody willing to let very, very clear, you and I as lay people can understand that this, this was a dramatic misreading of what was available. How does that happen? And does that tell a larger story about our, our pharmaceutical industry? Well, there's a lot of medical wishful thinking, and, always, and there right? always is. Hmm. In this case, it, that was combined with what doctors, you know, pain is a real problem for people. But for doctors, it's one of those conditions that in some ways is something that they don't want to deal with because you have patients coming in complaining of pain. They try this thing. They try that thing. It doesn't work. The patient comes back and doctors who really want to solve problems become extremely frustrated. So, so they're convenient. looking for a solution. How convenient to believe you found the silver bullet. Right. right. Exactly. And, and, you know, it's so there's medical wishful thinking. And what I was surprised by, because I actually went back in the early 2000s when I was first reporting on this and looked at these studies, I, as a layman, was stunned. That it was so obvious and so well, It was clear. obvious to me, and, <laughs> and, and, and what was also obvious to me was that none of these doctors had actually gone back and done this themselves. They had taken the word of the so-called experts, and I think that it's not unique to pain drugs. I mean, in my career as a reporter, I've seen this type of thing happen time and time, time again. Time and time again. Someone smarter than I am said it is so, thus it must be so, right? Right. And they're giving me a solution. They're giving me an answer. They're giving me a way of dealing with something or making more money as a doctor or increasing my own standing as a doctor. So, not to disparage in any way, shape, or form the people that were involved with this, because I think many of them had good intentions. They also, there was also a bit of ego involved for them. Like, who would not want to be known as the doctor who solved what had been an age-old medical problem? You know, who would not want to have that as part of their legacy? So while some people might say, well, these doctors were on the take or they're taking money from the drug industry, what I came away believing was that there are things even more powerful than money. Oh, I think so too. And that's ideology. And, you know, once you buy into an ideology and you, you make that ideology your own, breaking that or, or coming to terms with the fact that you might have been wrong is virtually impossible. 
combine ego, the ability to rely on an expert convenience, and you end up with a recipe for good intentions gone terribly wrong, right? And I think there's a there's a broader life lesson in that, actually. How did you come to think about the role of the FDA in all of this? Well, I, I found that it abhorrent for the most part. I mean... Because um, they allowed Purdue to make these claims for OxyContin when it was first rolled out in 1996. Well, I mean, they did not require Purdue to produce the types of studies that would have justified the claims that Purdue was allowed to make. And in my view, that wasn't necessarily on Purdue. That was on the FDA. It's their job to make sure that claims that are being made by a drug manufacturer are consistent with some semblance of science. And then when it became apparent within a couple of years that the drug was being abused, they were very slow to take action. Why do you think that is? Are they simply, again, is it just a question of money and the fact that the FDA under the Prescription Drug User Act is largely funded by drug companies? Is it just money or is there something more complicated at work? I I think it's more complicated. I think it's that they're institutionally disinclined to go back and revisit decisions and acknowledge that they were wrong. And it, once a decision has been made, they stick with it. Yeah, I mean, they have they have to defend it. But they, you know, it's, it's really, was really only after uh, the Times and other newspapers started reporting about the growing abuse of OxyContin beginning in 2000 and early 2001 that the FDA kind of, started taking action, and and then they were pretty slow in what they did. Even then. What about on those reports of abuse? Another of David Sackler's arguments, in in a sense, is that the reports of abuse were largely anecdotal. They were just scattered and isolated and anecdotal. Do you agree with that? And even if we, we grant him that, when do reports of anecdotal abuse become powerful enough that someone should say, this is more than an anecdote, this is more than an isolated event? Well, I don't know what report specifically David Sackler was referring to. I don't know what reports David Sackler was aware of. When I was first writing Painkiller, that question came up in my own mind, like, well, when when did Purdue first really know about this? Right. And they had testified publicly that they first became aware uh, of the drugs abuse, I believe, in, in the spring of 2000, when the U.S. attorney in Maine uh, sent a notice to doctors there, warning them that people were coming in to basically con them into prescribing OxyContin. When I started looking at that statement, I started backtracking and came up with numerous newspaper reports from small towns, in Appalachian, other places, other kinds of police warnings that were issued, interactions between doctors who'd been arrested for running pill mills or charged with running pill mills, and Purdue executives. So, you know, where this tipping point happened is really impossible to know, although I'll add that when I came into possession a few years ago of 
the report of the prosecutors who had investigated Purdue in the mid-2000s, they had access to something that I didn't have access to, and I suspect David Sackler didn't have access to, which was like an internal database of reports. And what they found was that there were 117 reports that had been filed by sales reps working for Purdue who visited doctors. Wow. And that was between 1996 and 1999, really the first few years that OxyContin was on the market, 117 separate reports in which the words um, like abuse, diversion, or street sale, words that would be red flags for abuse. So was that anecdotal? Were those scattered? I don't know, but it suggested that there was information that was coming to Purdue that could have tipped them off. And you would hope, I think, that whether anecdotal or not, the bar should be higher when we're talking about people's lives. In other words, if you're getting anecdotal evidence that somebody's eating too many Cheetos, it's a little bit different than anecdotal evidence that people are dying because of prescription drugs, right? Right. Well, (laughs) you know, I, I think Purdue would make the argument that, okay, everybody knows that or everyone's always known that prescription narcotics can be abused. I mean, that's that's happened always, right? Right. But this was a slightly different situation, which is that this drug was being marketed essentially as less abusable yes. than the run-of-the-mill prescription painkiller. That's how Purdue was setting OxyContin apart from competing drugs. So were they under special duty to pay attention to that because they were marketing it differently? Did they think, eh, this is just what you'd expect to happen? I think perhaps, yes. There's something <laughs> There's something about this argument that, well, we told you it was addictive, so we're covered, even though we marketed it as non-addictive. That's this very dark version of trying to have your cake and eat it too. So Purdue famously settled with the Justice Department in 2007, paying $600 million in fines. Was this a lost opportunity in some ways, in your view? I think that had this trial gone forward. Instead, uh, of, re- instead of a settlement, had there actually a been a trial. Or even if the Justice Department had released more documents that they had gathered, things could have changed. A lot of evidence that the government had assembled to make their case would have come to public light. And, and I think the import of that would have gone far beyond Purdue. Because I think doctors and and patients and lawmakers would have begun to realize at that point that these drugs weren't a panacea, that these drugs had a variety of problems connected with them. I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to when I think about what might have been different had the circumstances surrounding the settlement played out differently is the fact of the matter that in the four years after the settlement, around 100,000 people died from overdoses involving narcotic painkillers. During that same period, doctors kept prescribing more and more of these drugs. So so the, the societal change that would take place in 2013 or 14 with the realization that this is out of hand and we need to do something about it, 
might have happened back then had this situation played out. We talked about doctors in the medical establishment as this largely being a story of good intentions gone wrong. Do you see that more broadly writ with Purdue, with the FDA, with the DEA? How much do you see it as a, as, as a broad story of good intentions gone wrong versus willful evil? You know, I see it as a, a story of starting out good intentions yep. gone wrong and then morphing into one where the forces in our society or the players in our society who we look to to check excesses, to address wrongs, to right the scales, if you will, and that is everyone from lawmakers to regulators to lawyers to public health officials fail to do their job, fail to step up when it was needed. I mean, I can recall very vividly, you know, I, I tried to like step back from this at a certain point. And I would watch as year after year after year, the number of overdoses increase, the number of adverse reactions and your increase. And, and I would think to myself, how long are people going to allow this to go on? And it kept going on and on and on. It didn't make a difference what party was in political power. I remember very clearly having a discussion with a person who was in the uh, White House Office of Drug Control Policy. This was during the Obama administration. And, you know, people for a long time had promoted the idea that doctors who prescribe these drugs should have some basic training, right, to be able to recognize people who might be prone to abuse, to know how to use these drugs better. It was not to, like, restrict the use of the drugs, just make doctors smarter. Seems like a reasonable idea. Yeah, smarter in the use of the drugs. And this person, like, broached the idea to the American Medical Association. And the American Medical Association stopped the idea dead in its tracks. Because they didn't want to impose that requirement upon doctors? Exactly, because they were defending... The doctor who was too busy, too lazy, too whatever to want to go through this training. Is it too strong to call it a tale, this entire saga, the tale of a corrupt system? Is that too strong a word? I don't know if I would call it a tale of a corrupt system, but I would say that it certainly illuminates how people and organizations and institutions fail to step up and do what's needed to be done when a problem is staring them square in the face because they are more interested in their own, be it financial, professional, whatever interests, and they're unwilling to see the greater good that could come out from stepping forward. You write in your book, as we've been talking about, drug regulators, lawmakers, medical associations, and even public health officials seem frozen, uncertain of what to do or how to respond. In some ways, it would almost be better if it were a tale of corruption, but it's almost a tale of convenience, right? Yeah, and just entropy. It was, yes, and, and entropy. entropy and convenience. Yeah. It, was just, it was just more convenient not to look at it. Right, and in a lot of cases, it, it would have required organizations to do an about face. For example, there was a hospital organization that had made pain the, the so-called joint, the joint fifth, commission, right? Yeah, the fifth final sign. And 
as a result of that, the use of these drugs in hospital settings became much more liberalized. There were even system, you know, companies that were making money selling surveys to rate your doctor on how well they treated your pain. So there was a whole, not only market, but aftermarket of services and organizations and what have you that were tied in one shape or form into the liberal use of these medications. And so anything that kind of would upset that apple cart was some skin off of their back in some ways. So you end your book by pointing out that the lesson of the past two decades is a clear one. Change is not optional. And David Sackler made a similar argument to me that we need to focus on fixing this now. And of course, his is a self-interested one in the sense that the argument is stop suing us. Let's all focus on fixing this instead. What would you, what would you do if you could wave your magic wand, um, there may, there, if, if there is one, to make things better? What would you do from here? I think there are two important things that have to happen. Without a doubt, the most important thing that has to happen is that we need to provide adequate treatment for people who have drug abuse problems. And, and we can't hope to solve it easily. We can't be fooled into thinking that there's a pill for this ill as well, because these are very complicated medical conditions and, and people need both drug treatment and behavioral and psychological counseling for long periods of time, and it's very costly. The other thing that I personally think is extremely important is for the truth to come out, the truth about what, what people knew, when, what they people knew, knew when they knew it, and that we have a reckoning with what occurred. And that is only going to happen if the documents in the, all the litigation that is going on right now come to light, become public. And my great concern is that there, once again, there will be a settlement. Yes. And, and through the transactional relationships that exist between plaintiff's lawyers and corporations, uh, the plaintiff's lawyers will see it to their benefit to settle these cases and seal these documents. And judges will go along with that. And so the history of this horrible crisis and the, and the real causes will be sealed away. And to me, that would be tragic. Buried in the shadows. I am going to hope that that, that that is not the outcome. So I could keep talking to you forever, but thank you so much for coming. This has been fascinating. I almost don't know where to start. I find the Oxycontin saga itself endlessly fascinating. But the bigger picture aspects, the ways in which this is a universal story, are also both fascinating and frightening. For instance, to what extent are truly horrible stories like this one a function of people who set out to do evil versus this odd, almost more terrifying mixture of good intentions gone wrong, convenience, and as Barry says, entropy. On a previous episode, Alex Gibney and I talked about belief, how it is almost more dangerous and frightening than people setting out to tell lies. There's plenty of the worst kind of belief at work in this story. And to what extent is this an indictment of our system? Not just the ways in which money influences and yes, corrupts the pharmaceutical industry, but also an indictment of the ineptitude of regulators we depend on to protect us and maybe even an indictment of the justice system itself because of the ways in which the pieces of this story that we most need to understand have stayed in the shadows and may well continue to do so. 
Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.